0: We're going to be looking this afternoon at verses 10 to 16 of Titus 1, and what I want to do is read again verses 5 to 16. Titus 1, verses 5 to 16, For this reason I left you in Crete that you should set in order the things that are lacking and appoint elders in every city as I commanded you. If a man is blameless, the husband of one wife, having faithful children, not accused of dissipation or insubordination. For a bishop must be blameless as a steward of God, not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not given to wine, not violent, not greedy for money, but hospitable a lover of what is good, sober-minded, just, holy, self-controlled, holding fast the faithful word as he has been taught, that he may be able by sound doctrine both to exhort and convict those who contradict. For there are many insubordinate, both idle talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision, whose mouths must be stopped, who subvert whole households teaching things which they ought not for the sake of dishonest gain. One of them, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith, not giving heed to Jewish fables and commandments of men who turn from the truth. To the pure all things are pure, but to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but even their mind and conscience are defiled. They profess to know God, but in works they deny him, being abominable, disobedient, and disqualified from every good work. Okay, brothers and sisters, in our Lord Jesus Christ, last week we talked about verses 5 to 9 of the chapter, about the office of elder and the form of government which God has established for his church in the New Testament. And we spent a little bit of time at the end of last week's study also talking about the functions of the office of elder or the work of the elders. And it's that that is the main subject of these verses we're looking at this afternoon, the work of the office of elder. But the apostle here talks about only one aspect of that work we mentioned a number of things last week and especially of course the work of the elders falls on in the area of uh, caring for the flock of god but here the apostle is particularly interested in that work of the elder elders in exhorting and convicting those who contradict as he says in verse 9, that he may be able, that is, an elder may be able, by sound doctrine, both to exhort and convict those who contradict. So there was a problem in the churches on the island of Crete with those who contradicted the gospel, who contradicted the apostolic teaching. And they were a threat, to both sound doctrine and to godly living. And there was a need, therefore, in the churches on the island of Crete to stop those contradictors of apostolic teaching. And Paul's purpose then, or one of Paul's purposes in instructing Titus to ordain elders in the churches was so that these elders could deal with that problem. The problem of those who were contradicting the apostolic teaching. And so that they could take over a work which Titus was really doing at that point. Because Paul wanted Titus to join him, to leave Crete and to join him in Macedonia. He says that in chapter 3. So what we're going to do this uh, this afternoon, first of all, is, is look at who these false teachers were. They were especially Jews. Paul makes that very clear in verse 10, first of all. There are many insubordinate, both idle talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision. And again, in verse 14, when he says, not giving heed to Jewish fables and commandments of men who turn from the truth. So they were especially Jews who were contradicting the apostolic teaching. And this was no new experience for the Apostle Paul, of course. From the very beginning of his preaching the gospel, even when he was first converted, and in the city of Damascus, the Jews had opposed him, and had opposed him strongly. And all through the years of his ministry, also during his missionary journeys, it was more the Jews than anyone else who contradicted him and who sought to undermine his teaching and his standing in the churches. It does seem likely here in Titus that these Jews were not Uh, unbelieving Jews. That is, these were Jews who had confessed Christ and were members of the churches there in Crete. I say that especially because of Titus chapter 3, where he talks about again about the problems that were arising there in Corinth, Titus 3 verses 9 to 11, But avoid foolish disputes, genealogies, notice the uh, Jewish emphasis on genealogies there, contentions and strivings about the law, again a Jewish thing, strivings about the law, for they are unprofitable and useless. Reject a divisive man after the first and second admonition, knowing that such a person is warped and sinning, being self-condemned. And this... First and second admonition refer to the process of excommunication, which our Lord Jesus Christ outlines in Matthew 18. So he's dealing with members of the church, members of the churches there. And these were Jews then who had confessed Christ and who perhaps were now teaching the uh, Judaizing heresy or who were teaching other things that came out of their Um, own uh, youth and their own uh, teaching as members of the Jewish nation at that time, which they had not abandoned as they should have. So that's one thing. They They were Jews. But the other thing that Paul indicates here is that these were Jews who were heavily influenced by the culture of the island of Crete in which they lived. That's very clear in verse 12. One of them, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. So these were Jews, yes, and they. Were, but they were Jews who were influenced by their own culture, the culture of the island of Crete. And that's a a kind of surprising thing perhaps to us because there's probably been no people in the history of the world, uh, since Christ came anyway, that has been as good as the Jews at maintaining their own identity in whatever uh, nation they find themselves, among whatever kind of people they find themselves, for however many generations they may live among these peoples, they tend to remain very much Jews. They do not uh, lose that identity as Jews. But Paul says, makes it plain here, these were Jews very much under the influence of the culture of Crete. And I think that what we should take away from that then is that it shows us how very difficult it is for us not to be influenced by our own culture, not to be shaped, to some degree anyway, by the culture in which we live. Um, we can think of, I think, a number of ways, that, the, in, uh, especially the 20th century here in America. Uh, divorce and remarriage became very common in the world. But what has happened in the church? You see this same practice has become exceedingly common in the church of our Lord Jesus Christ. The church has been heavily influenced in this regard by the culture in which it lives. And there are probably many other more subtle ways in which the culture influences us. We might, for example, talk about American individualism and how that American individualism has become a problem in the church, how it has affected how uh, Christians view the church, and how they relate to the church, separating themselves readily and easily from the church, and and treating the church as if it's a kind of voluntary organization which is there for their benefit if they want to make use of it, but which they can freely uh, abandon uh, by their own choice. So there's a warning implicit in this, I think, against those influences, subtle and not-so-subtle influences of the culture. They sometimes have greater effect on us than we are willing to acknowledge and perhaps even than we are aware of. But what was it about the Cretans, then, that had influenced these Jewish uh, converts and he says it was the national character of the Cretans. One of them, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. And he, he gives us four, really, four characteristics of these, of the of the Cretans. As we might, for example, speak of, of the British as being stoic, of the Uh, Irish as being hot-tempered and excitable, or of Americans as being brash and very materialistic. So Paul, looking at the Cretans and judging them partly on on the basis of what one of their own people said about them, characterizes them as liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. In other words, they were more given to lying than uh, other peoples around them in the Mediterranean world. They were evil beasts, and I think this can mean a a couple of different things. It might mean, for example, that they were rapacious, that they were like wild beasts and and savage and brutal in their character. Or it might mean something more like what we have about uh, those who are devoted to wealth in Psalm 49, the psalmist there says that those who are devoted to their wealth and to their earthly goods are like the beasts that perish. Their lives are all wrapped up in the things of this world and they, they do not think or have any uh, desire for things beyond this world. Their portion is in this life, Psalm 17 says. And there's no interest in, in the spiritual thing, it might be beasts in that sense also that Paul is talking about here. And also he says they are lazy gluttons. The Greek here is actually they are lazy bellies. They're people who are, in the first place, then lazy, and in the second place, people who are gluttonous with regard to food. And all these. Of all these things, Paul says, this witness is true. What their own prophet said about them is true. It's a, a proper judgment, but it's a very harsh judgment, isn't it? All these things that are mentioned here are things that are contrary to the law of God. Lying. Lying. Being materialistic, if that's what he means, or or savage and and brutal in one's behavior. Being lazy, being gluttonous. These are all things that God forbids in his commandments. And so this condemnation of these uh, false teachers by the Apostle Paul is a very serious, a very severe condemnation, a very harsh judgment. He says They're like the rest of the Cretans in these things, in being liars and evil beasts and lazy gluttons. So it wasn't just that these uh, Cretans, these uh, Jewish teachers, false teachers in the church were teaching falsehood, but their behavior, their um, way of life was also a very uh, ungodly way of life. So those are the two things I think that we should note about those false teachers, first of all, that they were Jews and that they were Jews heavily influenced by their own Cretan culture. The second thing that we want to look at is what they were teaching. Now, of course, the apostle has already said in verse 9 that they are contradicting the teaching of the truth, as has been done by the Apostle Paul himself, as has been done by Titus, and other Christian teachers as well. But he says a few more things about their teaching, also in the course of these verses. In verse 11, he says about them, that they teach things which they ought not. For the Apostle Paul, there is no such thing as freedom of speech in the church. There's not any uh, kind of idea that every man should be allowed to have his own opinions, and that every man should be allowed to express his opinions freely, and that every man should have a right to speak up and to say what he thinks uh, to the rest of the church of God, Paul does not grant them the right before God to teach what they want to teach. They are teaching what they ought not to teach, he says. They're not allowed to teach these things according to God's own instructions to his church. And their mouth, therefore, must be stopped. Another thing he says, and this is in verse 14, is that they are teaching Jewish fables, not giving heed to Jewish fables and commandments of men who turn from the truth. I think these Jewish fables probably fall especially into two categories. First of all, there's invented history. And this Invented history, we could refer for this, examples of this invented history, we could refer to some of the Old Testament apocrypha, the song of the three children in the furnace, for example, or the story of Susanna and the dragon, I think it is. I'm I'm not sure I have actually got that right. But some of this apocryphal history that was apparently made up by Jews and then became rather important in many ways to the uh, Jewish people, but also some of the Jewish teachers had a tendency to uh, elaborate on and embellish biblical stories with all sorts of imaginary uh, things, to go beyond what the scriptures actually say in these instances and just make up the stories, perhaps to to give them a kind of uh, Uh, reality or what they considered to be a kind of reality or, or vividness that the biblical histories themselves don't necessarily have or which they thought they did not have. So that's one thing that probably falls into the category of these Jewish fables. And the other is strange interpretations of the scriptures. Some of the Jews were also given to very uh, strange and far-out interpretations. There was a group of uh, Jewish teachers, in fact, who were heavily engaged in numerology and who wanted to uh, interpret the scriptures by means of numbers, especially. And This kind of, of uh, fabulous history, therefore, and this kind of strange interpretation is probably what Paul is talking about when he mentions Jewish fables. And then, uh, in the third place, he mentions also in verse 14, commandments of men who turn from the truth. This was Jesus' complaint against the Pharisees all during his earthly ministry, wasn't it? That these Pharisees taught all kinds of things that they said were the law of God, but which were really no more than traditions of men. And they bound men's consciences with these traditions of men. How far can a man walk on the Sabbath day? You must not heal on the Sabbath day unless it's a matter of life and death. You have to wash your hands after your eating, uh, before eating and many other like things. And the multiplication of commandments, which they observed themselves, but which they also demanded the rest of the people observe, was imposing upon the people a burden that God did not want his people to bear. And these were nothing more than the commandments of men who had turned from the truth. That is, even in their teaching of the law were turned away from, as Jesus says in one place, turned away from the essence of the law, justice and mercy and faith and uh, tithing mint and anise and cumin and all sorts of other practices which were not even required by the law. In other words, they were straining at gnats and swallowing camels. And then... I think if we turn again to chapter 3, verses 9 and following, we see one other thing there, and that is this matter of genealogies. The Jews put heavy emphasis on these genealogies and on the importance of genealogies, and that's not to say that the biblical genealogies do not have their importance for us. There are things that God intends us to learn from those genealogies. The Jews carried on about these genealogies to an unreasonable extent, and their teaching became unprofitable and useless in regard to them. These are the kinds of things, then, that these uh, Jewish teachers were doing to contradict uh, the apostolic teaching. Now, the next thing, then, that we want to look at is how Paul himself characterizes them. We've already looked at the fact that they were uh, influenced by their culture, but Paul has a long list of things here besides that um, about these teachers. And uh, he has, we should notice, nothing positive to say about their teaching and nothing positive to say about their way of life. He's full of criticism of them in every respect. He says in the first place, beginning in verse 10, that they are insubordinate. That is, they are not subject to authority. Not subject to the authority of the church, in the uh, elders, in the apostolic uh, teachers, in Titus himself not subject to the authority of God and of God's word. Uh, in the second place, they are idle talkers. And I think what he Paul has in mind here is exactly their teaching. He means that their teaching is idle talk, useless talk. You could characterize it in a much more severe and harsh way than that. You could say it's harmful talk. But at the very least, it's idle talk. It's, they shouldn't even have their mouths open because they have nothing useful to say. In the third place, they're deceivers because of their idle talk. And the Greek here is, again, very interesting. Paul has a way sometimes of, of making up new words but making them up from existing Greek words so that you get um, compound words that occur maybe only once in the New Testament anyway. And the Greek here means mind deceivers. We would probably say brainwashers. These are, are men who want to bring people into subjection to their own way of thinking. And who don't want them questioning You don't want them trying to think for themselves. Just listen to us. And we'll tell you what you ought to believe and what you ought to do. Fourthly, they're seekers of dishonest gain. Now Paul had used a similar expression in talking about the qualifications of elder in verses 5 to 9. He had said there that they must not be greedy for money. Verse 7. Not greedy for money. But here he goes a little bit farther and he says, not only are these people greedy for money, but they're greedy for dishonest gain. That is, they're men who are covetous, but at the same time they, are, they want to get rich by means of dishonesty. Third, uh, in the fifth place he talks about them as defiled. There that's a word that's sometimes used of ceremonial defilement in the New Testament. So if someone touched a dead animal, for example, he became ceremonially unclean and had to be uh, cleansed through the proper uh, ceremonies of the law. But what Paul is talking about here is what that ceremonial defilement points to, the defilement of sin. They are defiled inwardly, defiled in their souls. And as a result of this inward defilement, they, nothing is pure to them. That's another thing he says about them, to whom nothing is pure. They're defiled inwardly, and therefore because of that inward defilement, there's nothing even of God's good gifts that is pure to them. Uh, As an example of this, I think we may refer to 1 Timothy 4, verses 1 and following. The Spirit expressly says that in latter times some will depart from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons, speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their own conscience seared with a hot iron, forbidding to marry and commanding to abstain from foods which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. There's two of God's good gifts, marriage and food. And to these people, these things are defiled. They cannot think of them as good gifts of God. And Paul adds to that, their mind and conscience are defiled. So they're defiled in their character. Nothing is pure to them and their mind and their conscience are defiled. Their thoughts are corrupt and wicked. Their consciences are accusing and excusing their sins. They're altogether defiled in every possible way. But that's not the extent of it either. Paul goes on to Say even more about these false teachers. They profess to know God, he says, but deny him in works. They are professors, as we noticed, of the Christian faith. Uh, there's a strong emphasis among them on religious practice. And their religious practice is not according to God's law, not really according to God's law, and this fact shows that they do not know God. They do not love God, they do not walk with God, they do not know what God teaches and what God requires of his people. This is manifest in their works. They profess a knowledge of God, they profess The uh, faith of our Lord Jesus Christ and their works show that they deny it. And therefore, they are abominable. Abominable to God and abominable to those who love the truth and who love the way of truth. They are, in addition, disobedient. Disobedient to the truth, disobedient to the law and they are disqualified for every good work. They're incapable of doing any good. Their focus is on good works as they define them, and exactly because they define good works in the wrong way, they're disqualified from doing any real good works, disqualified for every good work quite a list of condemnations of these false teachers that Paul gives us here. It's the judgment of God upon these false teachers through the Apostle Paul. The next thing we want to consider is the effect of their teaching. And Paul talks about this in verse 11, who subvert whole households. No, one of the things that would have characterized the Jews of Paul's day, of course, was that they came out of this whole context of the covenant people, God's people, covenant people. And that covenant of God focuses on households. The Jews had a, an appreciation for the importance of the household, which we are lacking today, largely. Not just a family, of father and mother and children, but a family that would also include, a household that would also include, for example, servants, such as the household of Abraham. The Jews had this very focus on households, and when they were teaching their false doctrine, they focused on households. They weren't just interested in individuals, but they were interested in converting whole households to their way of thinking and their way of life. They knew the importance of the household and therefore they were corrupting the whole idea of the covenant of God with households. And they were turning, subverting whole households from the truth and from godly living. Paul also had an interest in households, of course. As he shows throughout his his letters and of converting not just individuals, but converting households and bringing the gospel to households. But these Jews are, are working in their false way and thus subverting households of those who have confessed the faith. This is a, a very serious matter that these false teachers are engaged in this kind of subversion and this kind of false teaching, therefore. And that means that the elders have to take action and the elders have to work hard to stop these false teachers. And that's what we're going to consider in the last place here. What the elders must do. It begins already in verse 9. They must exhort and convict those who contradict. Now, that's uh, an interesting thing. The apostle uh, says, work with these false teachers, exhort them, convince, convict, reprove, rebuke, refute them. The word has a number of different translations there. Reprove, rebuke, refute them, but exhort them. That is, uh, exhort them to abandon their false teaching. Convince them that their false teaching is indeed false. Rebuke them for this false teaching. And, of course, the purpose then would be to bring them into the way of the truth. The the point is that the primary instrument which the teachers in the church have for the conversion of sinners is the truth, is God's word. Use God's word, have confidence, Paul says, in the power of the word of God. Have confidence in the power of that word to convict sinners, To bring home to them the evil of their ways and the evil of their teaching. That word is a sharp two-edged sword that pierces to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit. Use the word. Preach the word. Teach the word. Exhort by means of the word. Refute from the word. Let the word of God be the power of God unto salvation and also unto judgment. It's in that way, especially then, that their mouths must be stopped also by the rebukes, the exhortations, the refutations of God's word. But also by means of discipline, as we've already noted in Titus 3 verses 10 and 11, the power of excommunication, rejected, divisive man after the first and second admonition, knowing that such a person is warped and sinning, being self-condemned. And that's a, a reference to our Lord's own teaching in Matthew chapter 18. We'll turn there for a moment and read those few verses in Matthew 18, verses 15 to 17, where Jesus gives to his apostles the Authority of excommunication, and exhorts us also in this regard. Matthew eighteen verses fifteen to seventeen. Moreover, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. There's the first exhortation that Paul refers to you. Two, if he hears you, you have gained your brother. But if he will not hear, take with you one or two more that by the mouth of two or three witnesses every word may be established. There's the second accusation that Paul is talking about in Titus 3. And if he refuses to hear them, tell it to the church. But if he refuses even to hear the church, let him be to you like a heathen and a tax collector. There's the power of excommunication. Now, we should notice also that in verse 13, Paul uses the word rebuke again. Therefore, rebuke them sharply. And that word is the same word that you find in verse 9 when he says exhort and convict or exhort and rebuke those who contradict. Rebuke them, he says here, sharply. There is a place for uh, the elders in the church for the people of God, to be sharp. To be angry, in fact. We hear a lot, perhaps in some context anyway, too much about being loving and kind and patient. There's a place for anger. There's a pa- place for sharpness, especially in dealing with heretics. Jesus... Uh, demonstrated this very clearly in his earthly ministry when he was dealing with the people of Israel in general. He was kind, he was compassionate, he was patient. He looked upon them as sheep who had no shepherd, who were straying everywhere because the shepherds whom God had called to this work were not teaching them and leading them properly. But when he was dealing with those shepherds, with those leaders of the Jews, Then it was very different, wasn't it? You blind guides, you hypocrites, you whited sepulchers. That was the kind of language he used with them. And that's what Paul is talking about here. These are the same kinds of people that Jesus was so sharply condemning in his words. And he says, rebuke these people sharply Be angry with them. They are subverting households, subverting households of believers by their teaching. You can't uh, be patient and kind and, and thoughtful and loving with this kind of person. You have to deal with the danger. These are savage wolves who have entered in among the flock and they have to be stopped. Your first concern has to be stopping them. But at the same time, this sharpness is still to uh, be aimed at their being sound in the faith. This, He says in verse 13, Rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith, not giving heed to Jewish fables and commandments of men who turn from the truth. Aim at their conversion from their false and uh, faithless ways. But use sharpness, because the safety of the people of God is at stake here. So what we have is a situation, I think, which Paul had anticipated in talking with the elders of Ephesus, and we'll end here. Paul had exhorted the elders of the church in Ephesus in Acts 20, verses 28 and following, Therefore take heed to yourselves and to all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God which he purchased with his own blood. For I know this, that after my departure savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Savage wolves had come in among the flock of God in Crete. Also from among yourselves men will rise up, speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after themselves. Therefore watch and remember for three years that for three years I did not cease to warn everyone night and day with tears. This is the business to which Paul wants these elders to commit themselves. The business of caring for the flock in all the different ways that God calls elders to care for the flock. But there was a special need in the churches in Crete to deal with these false teachers and to deal with them quickly, to bring an end to their false teaching. A lesson for us then in how to deal with false teachers in the church of our Lord Jesus Christ. May God bless his word for us.